Genesis chapter 12. I'll tell you right now, we're not going to get real far. We're not going to finish Genesis chapter 12 this morning. We're going to look primarily again at these uh, first eight verses. We're going to look at it from a little bit different perspective. Um, So let me read to you Genesis chapter 12, verses 1. I'm going to go ahead and read through the eighth chapter, the eighth verse. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in all in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to, the land, to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give you this land. There he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, and he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the, Ai on the east, And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Okay, we're going to look at these verses. Uh, Last week, we we looked at uh, pretty much the same verses, and we talked about what does this first part uh, that the Lord tells to Abram, get out of your country, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And I would really encourage you to go online, listen to to the sermon, to the message, online so you kind of get a background because I can't, don't have time today to, to rehash that. <clears throat> and we, we said last week that Abram was a picture, a type of Christ, Christ who left his father's house, who left heaven and came to the earth. And that is true. Today I want to look at this from a little bit different perspective. If we see here in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, or your translation may say, the Lord spoke to Abram, but God spoke to Abram. He said, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse Him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the Lord said to Abram, God spoke to Abram. Genesis, I'm sorry, Romans 12, uh, excuse me, Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. God spoke to Abram and told him to leave his country and to go to a land that he would show him. And the Bible tells us that Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and he went out 
from that land, and he came to the land of Canaan. So Abram heard the word of the Lord, and in faith he obeyed, he left the old to come into the new. And we talked about this as a picture of Christ, but I want to look at this as a picture of the church, a picture of us, who are called out of the old and into the new. So let's look at Abram's journey from another perspective here. It says in verse um, 5 that Abram took Sarah, his wife, he took Lot, his uh, brother's son, and all the possessions and all that he had acquired while he was in Haran, and he departed from that land to go to the land of Canaan. And then the last sentence of verse 5 says, so they came to the land of Canaan. So this picture says that they departed and then they came to the land of Canaan. Now, the journey that Abram made from Haran to the land of Canaan was at least 500 miles. And he made this journey on foot with a large group of people and lots of possessions. He didn't have a truck. He didn't have a trailer. He, he was on foot, more or less. And they made this journey. And the Bible doesn't give us any detail about that aspect of his journey. That was the longest leg of his journey, except when he left from Ur of the Chaldees with his father to go to Haran. That was the longest leg of his journey. But yet, the Bible gives us this picture that he left, and the next thing we know, he's come into the land of Canaan. So Abram's journey to Canaan pictures our experience of coming out of the world and being born again of the Spirit and entering into the promise of new life in Christ. Abram's journey pictures the believer coming in into Christ out of the old, out of the world, out of the old man and into the new, into the spiritual into Christ, into new life. It speaks of God's call and our journey from death to life by grace through faith in Jesus. And in verse 5 here where it says, Abram departed and came into the land, it gives us a picture of what happens when we are born again. Now I want you to, to remember the Bible says that we're created in the image of God. And God is triune, and I believe man is also triune. Man is body, soul, and spirit. You have a body. That's your physical expression. That's, you know, this thing here, your flesh. You have a soul. In the Greek, the word suke is the word used for the soul, and it means the seat of the mind, the will, and the emotions. So you have a body, and you have a mind, you have a will, and you have emotions. Guess what drives your body to do what it does, other than your natural created reflexes? How many of you decided you were going to come to church today? Well, all of you here, right? You made a decision that you were going to come. You did that out of your soul, out of your mind, your will, and your emotions. That's a part of you. Then we have another part called our spirit. So we're spirit, we're soul, we're body. When you're born again, 
the part of you that is instantly changed, the part of you that is transformed instantaneously. There's no delay, there's no detours, there's no winding path that takes you 40 years through the wilderness. When you're born again, you immediately, without delay, go from being in death and you're translated into life. God does this. You don't do that. God does that by His Spirit. You didn't do that as an act of your will. You didn't will that to happen. You didn't make this long, hard decision. No, God did that by His Spirit. And that journey from death to life is that quick. I mean, it happens. This is what we see pictured here with Abram. And we see this picture throughout the Scripture. So Abram departed. He came into the land. When we're born again, we don't go directly from death to life in Christ. Our journey from death to life, from darkness to light, from old to new in Christ is not, as I said, full of detours and delays on the way. When we are born again, we come immediately into the promise of the finished work of Christ without delay, without any detours. So here's the reality, Christian. If you have been born again today, you have come into, immediately into, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Who is your righteousness? Christ is your righteousness. Now the fact that you have come into that finished work and that He is your righteousness does not mean that God doesn't want you to live a righteous life. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to live a holy life. It means that your ability to live a righteous life or your ability to live a holy life or your ability to be a good law keeper does not determine your righteousness. What determines your righteousness is your faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you were born again, you were brought into that finished work. And when you were brought into that finished work, you were changed. Whether you realize it or not, and some people realize it more than others. But the reality is when you were brought into the finished work of Christ through the new birth, by grace, through faith, you were changed. Inwardly, you were changed. Your spirit that was dead and separated from God has now come alive and been conformed to the image of God, to the image of Christ. Now, there's two other parts of you that need work, your mind and your body. Listen, your body's a lost cause, okay? Go ahead and diet and eat right. That's great. Go to CrossFit. That's great. Go to Body Fit, whatever, you know. I did that for a while. Thank you, Frankie. And it was good. It's good for you. But you're never going to... There's no fountain of youth. You're not going to be able to keep from aging. The, Paul says the outward man is perishing day by day, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. Now, the fact that your outward man, this body, is perishing doesn't mean you shouldn't take good care of it. Take good care of it as long as you can. Honor it. Be good to it. Treat it good. But the bottom line is this. One day, it's going to give up. One day, it's going to wear out. One day, it's going to pass away. And the reason it's going to do that is because it must do that. Because flesh and blood cannot, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The only way you're going to make the transition 
from this life, this body, to a glorified body is that this thing's going to have to pass away before God can give you a new one. So there's another part in between your spirit and your body, if I can speak to it that way. That's your soul. Your mind, your will, your emotions. Your soul is not passing away. Your soul, the Bible says, is being saved. Or it's being renewed. So this is the command that the Scripture gives us. This, especially when we read the New Testament writings of, of Paul and the other apostles. It is this command, this constant encouragement that we renew our mind to the truth so that my mind comes in line with the reality of the finished work that's already been accomplished for me that I've already been brought into by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The journey now that I'm on the journey that's full of detours and delays and winding paths is this journey to comprehend the reality of what God has given to me in Christ. So we see this, we're not there yet, but we see this with the children of Israel. Not in their journey through the wilderness, but when they came into the land. They had a journey in the wilderness. They couldn't even get into the promise until they... What? Until they had faith. There were only two guys listed in the scripture that made it into the promised land from the old generation. That was Joshua and Caleb. And the Bible says they entered in because they had faith. They had faith from the beginning. Caleb talked about Moses. It's a beautiful picture. Um, and there's other reasons why Moses, uh, what Moses represents, what Moses represented could never bring us into the promise. The law cannot bring us into the promise. Your ability to keep the law can't bring you into the promise. It can only show you the promise. It can only enable you to see the promise. But you have to go from that into the promise because the law can't take you there. And so now as believers, we're on this journey, this journey to come to fully comprehend the finished work of Christ. So the journey from Haran to Canaan no sweat. Now we're going to see, once Abraham gets into the promised land, we're going to look at this in more detail next week, he starts running into difficulty. He starts having problems. He starts experiencing things. And the Bible begins to chronicle God's dealing with Abraham as he is experiencing the reality of this life in the promise. And God is teaching Abram throughout his journey What's he teaching him? He's teaching him how to trust him. He's teaching him that he is trustworthy, that he is faithful. God makes a promise, and 25 years later, it's like, God, you made a promise. I thought, but, but where is it? 25 years does not determine whether God is faithful or not faithful. This is what we do. This is what Abraham did. We see, we'll see this in Abraham's life. God doesn't seem to be upholding his end of the bargain. Why don't we come up with our own plan here? That's kind of what man does. And every time we do that, we run into difficulty. And guess what God does? God uses that difficulty to teach us that he is faithful, that we need to trust in him. We need to wait upon him. And so Abram, he departs, he comes into the land, and it is a picture of us coming into the promise in Christ. Then it says this in 
chap, in uh, verse 7. So Abraham goes, he comes into Canaan, he passes through the land of Shechem, this is verse 6, and, and uh, the Canaanites were then in the land. Verse 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram. Now I want you to notice, verse 1 says the Lord spoke to Abram. Now we have here in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants I will give this land and then he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The Lord appeared to Abram. You've heard the old saying, seeing is believing. That's really not true. Seeing is not believing. The reality is believing is seeing. Abraham didn't believe because he saw. He saw because he believed. You don't believe because you see. You see because you believe. There's a lot of people on planet Earth waiting for God to show them himself. God, if you would just appear to me. God, if you would just do this. God, if you would just do that. If you would just show me something, God, then I would believe in you. Now, the problem is they have it backwards. Because seeing is not believing. You must believe before you will ever see. And this is what happened to Abram. God spoke to him. He believed God, and in his faith, God appeared to him. So seeing is not believing, but rather believing is seeing. The Lord appeared to Abram physically as well as spiritually. Long before, long before I believe, I believe this, before Abraham saw God physically, before the Lord appeared to him, Abram already believed, and by faith, God was real to him. The Lord had appeared to Abram in his heart, in his spirit, by faith. So the revelation of the Lord in us that must take place is not a physical revelation, but a spiritual revelation by faith in our heart. Abram did not know do you realize Abram didn't have a Bible? Abram didn't have the book of Genesis. You know why? Because the book of Genesis wasn't written yet. When Abram was walking the earth, there was no Bible. There was no record of Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis. Moses came long after Abram. So what did, what did Abram have? He didn't have anything written. And so God appeared to him. God spoke to him. God did that in ways that he does not do for us today. You know why? Because we have this today. So what was more of the rule instead of the exception in Abram's day? And it's not like God was appearing to Abram every day because he wasn't. The recorded episodes where God spoke and appeared to Abram were, were not close together. They were far apart. The proof that we have come into a better covenant based on better promises is this right here. That God throughout human history has recorded his inspired word through inspired men to the point that he has given to us this canon of scripture. Now, I don't have time to go into it today, but I promise you, 
There is every reason in the world to believe this is the true and inspired Word of God. This book has stood the test of time for thousands of years, not just a few decades. The attack on the Bible and the validity of the Bible didn't begin 50 years ago or 100 years ago or even 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. <clears throat> and time and time again, history and archaeology and, and everything else has proven the validity, validity of this word. The world just knew when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls that it was going to finally disprove the Scripture. But guess what? When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and when they finally, after decades, released them to the public, after all the scholars went through them, do you realize they had them and they, would not, they, they, they did not release them until everyone had gone through them? You know what the scholars realized? The Dead Sea Scrolls didn't disprove the Bible. They actually upheld the Bible. We have something that God's given us. Not only that, but even better than this written word, God dwells in us now. God lives in us by His Spirit. Christ dwells in your heart by the Spirit of God. God is not a million miles away up in heaven waiting for the next time that He's going to visit you on earth. Christ has come. God has poured out His Spirit. He lives in the heart of the believer. He lives in you by His Spirit. He is ever present with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. Abraham would have an encounter with God every so often, but you have the God of creation, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob living on the inside of you, and He never departs from you. He never leaves you. He is always with you walking with you, journeying with you through everything that you go through in this life. You need a revelation of that. The problem is, for many Christians, is not that God is not with them. The problem for many Christians is that they don't know that God is with them. They have such a limited revelation of who Christ is and what Christ has done and they don't comprehend the finished work. They don't understand what God has done already for them in Christ. And so this is the point that your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions would be renewed and transformed and conformed to that finished work, that reality that has already taken place. So what we need is a revelation of Christ by the Spirit. We have what Abraham did not have. We have the Scripture. We have the written revelation of Christ. We have the living Word inside of us. We have the Spirit to illuminate and to teach us and to lead us and to guide us. So Hebrews chapter 1 says that in former times past, in diverse ways, God spoke to men by prophets and by angels. But in the last days, in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. And He goes on to say, this Son is the express image of God, of His brightness, of His glory. 
And it is this Son who upholds everything by the word of his power. This is who dwells in you if you have been born again. This is who your God is. If you have made the journey from death to life, from darkness to light, if you are in Christ, how God speaks to you today is he doesn't appear at your, the end of your bed as a physical Jesus. He, he doesn't have to appear to your, at the end of your bed as a physical Jesus because he lives inside of you. He's already there. What you need is not a physical appearance of Jesus. What you need is a revelation of the Christ who lives inside of you. That's what we all need. How does God do that? How does he speak to us today? He speaks to us by his son. Who upholds all things by the word of his power. He's given you this word. This is the written word to reveal to us the living word. The written word is here in your Bible, but the living word dwells inside of you. You need to know that. You need to comprehend that. You need a revelation of that. Christ is revealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit through the power of the gospel. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the scripture is the primary means by which Christ is revealed in the heart of the believer. God works through his word breathed and inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded by inspired men, culminating in Christ, who is the Word made flesh. And where does that Christ live? He lives in you. And He lives in me, if we have been born again. Christ is the living Word revealed in us by the Holy Spirit. The revelation of Christ and the maturity in Christ that God desires to give His children? Listen, God wants to give you a revelation of Christ in you, and God wants to bring you to maturity in Christ. And how is He going to do that? He's going to do that by His Spirit, through His Word. This is what we see pictured with Abram. God spoke to Abram. God appeared to Abram. Why is that recorded in the scripture? Because God wants us to know that he is still speaking to us today. He is still appearing to us today. He's not doing it the same way he did with Abram. He has given us his word. He has put in us his spirit to open the eyes of our understanding. This is exactly what Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, that the eyes of your understanding would be opened. Why? So that you could see Jesus in you. The hope, the exceeding hope, the exceeding power of what God has done in Christ. What he has put in you and in what in the Christ he has put you in. So we see this picture in John 15, the vine and the branches. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You abide in me and I abide in you. You abide in Christ, and Christ abides in you. We need a revelation of that by the Spirit of God. So Christ appeared, God appeared to Abram. And it says that, that when God appeared, Abram built an altar. And it tells us that from there he moved. It wasn't a long journey. It was a very short journey. 
if you looked on the map and you see the places, once Abram got to the promised land, Abram was in a very small area. And when God appeared to him, he built an altar acknowledging that God had appeared to him. He moves, he moves between Bethel and Ai. And when he gets there, he pitches his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And then it says, there he built an altar. So he builds another altar to the Lord. But then it says, he built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. Now, I want to, before I get into this, I want to just, I want to read a scripture to you from Colossians. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. It says, so let no one judge you in food or drink, nor regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So what Paul is writing to the Colossians is that we no longer have the shadow, but, but we now have the substance who is Christ. So when the, you see my shadow right there? Can you all see my shadow on that wall? See it? You see it? Can you see it? Okay, what's making that shadow? Why is there a shadow? Because there's a substance. There's something of substance that's casting the shadow. So when we see that Abraham went from Haran to Canaan, when we see that God spoke to Abraham, God appeared to Abraham, and by the word of the Lord, Abraham had faith, he believed. And God did all of these things. Or when we read about Noah and the flood, or we read about Adam and Eve, when we read about Moses, or we read about the law, we read about the whole Judaic system, the whole of the Old Testament, all of these things that God recorded. Paul says in Galatians 3.24 that the law was my tutor that brought me to Christ. Here in Colossians, Paul writes, don't let anyone judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon. He's talking about the law of Moses there. Because here's what the Jews were saying. If you, in order for you to be Christians, in order for you to be saved, for Jesus to really be your Messiah, and for you to really have salvation in Him, you have to become a Jew first. You've got to keep the law. So you've got to dress right. You've got to eat right. You've got to uh, worship right. You've got to keep the right festivals. You've got to keep the right days. You've got to bring the right sacrifices to the temple. Basically, you've got to keep all of the law, but then you also have to profess faith in Jesus. And so Paul writes in his writings in the New Testament, look, if we could be saved by keeping the law, what was the point of Jesus coming? We could just all keep the law, right? Jesus died in vain if I could be saved by doing all this other stuff. So he says here, don't let anyone, he's writing to Gentiles who the Jews says you must become circumcised, you must become Jews in order to be saved. Paul writes, he says, don't let anyone turn over there. Hold your place in Genesis. This is actually worth reading in a greater context here. Colossians chapter 2. It's toward the end of your New Testament. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 2, Let's, let me begin in verse 6, Colossians 2, 6. 
So as, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Have you, Christian, listen, have you, I'm asking you, you don't have to answer, but I want you to answer within your heart and within your mind. Have you received Jesus Christ? If you have, then so walk in him. Rooted, how, how are we to walk? Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. As you have been taught, how did you, how did you learn how to walk? How did you learn how to behave? You were taught. When, 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 did, when did someone begin teaching you to walk? When did someone begin teaching you how to behave? Naturally speaking, when did that happen? When you turned 13, when you turned 16, when you turned 21, legal age, now we can learn how to walk and behave? No, when did you, parents, when did you start teaching your children how to walk and behave from the time they were born, right? Why do we hold our little babies up and let them bounce in our laps? Why do we hold them by their hands and let them, you know, I notice she's walking, it's so cute, just see her, she's walking between mommy and daddy. You know, babies didn't, they, they didn't, don't come out of the womb walking. They learn. When do we start teaching them? We start teaching them from the beginning. So Paul says, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. All of these things that we put on outwardly, religion and regulation, I'm not saying those are bad. There are some good regulations we need to follow, but that's not how we're saved. Matter of fact, we follow good regulations because we are saved. We do certain things because we are saved, not to become saved. So he says, don't let anyone cheat you according to these things that are of the world and not according to Christ. For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. I want you to note that. You are complete in Him. That's, that's a, very, it's a very simple statement that's very simple to understand. But it's not... So easy to believe. You are complete in Him, but your eyes don't always enable you to believe that because you see yourself for who you are. You see yourself failing. You see yourself sinning. You see yourself being anything but conformed to Christ. And so you believe, I'm really not complete in Him. And when you see yourself sinning and you see yourself failing, it shouldn't give us reason to give up. What it should do is motivate us to comprehend in a greater way the finished work, what we've already been brought into. And that reality of the finished work, that reality that we are complete in Him, should motivate us to walk in Christ as we have received Christ. Who have we received? Christ. Who is Christ? He is the righteousness of God. He is the holiness of God. So as we have received him, that's what we need to walk in. But we don't do that in our own power. How do we do it? We do it by faith. We do it by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
When we fail, it doesn't mean we can't walk. When children fall down, it doesn't mean they can't walk. It means they need to get back up and they need to walk again. They need to grow. They need to learn how to have stable legs under them. This is what we need to do spiritually. When we fail, we don't give up. We learn that I need to have more stable legs under me. How am I going to do that? I'm going to do that through the word that God's given me, through the scripture, allowing the scripture to wash my mind, to renew my mind, to build me up and to strengthen me so that I can walk and run and not faint and stumble. So Paul goes on and he says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. <clears throat> All right, we're fixing to baptize Chiron. Listen to what Paul says. He's comparing circumcision to baptism. He's talking about the sign of the covenant. He's saying, you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive. Who made alive? He made alive. You didn't make yourself alive. He made you alive. He made alive. Together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What does that mean, he disarmed them? It doesn't mean that the devil had guns. It doesn't mean that the devil had swords and spears and bows and arrows and Jesus took all their weaponry away from them. What that means is, is that Jesus at the cross took any reason the enemy could accuse us away from him. He took his accusation away from him. Because before Jesus went to the cross, the law showed that, that the enemy had every right to accuse me of my sinfulness and my failure because I constantly was failing and sinning. That's what the law reveals to us. But now Christ came and he took all of that away. He fulfilled the law. He nailed to the cross all that was written and required against us. He disarmed the enemy. In other words, he took everything that the enemy could use to accuse us. He took it away from him. How did he do that? He did that, number one, by fulfilling the law. And he did it also by being crucified in our stead and inviting us to come and be crucified with him. So now what happens to the old man who is rightfully accused by the enemy? The old man is crucified. He's buried. He's put away. He doesn't exist anymore. So who is my identity now? Christ is my identity. He is our righteousness. The enemy comes to the Father to accuse you, and all the Father knows is that you've been crucified with Christ. You're dead and buried. You don't exist anymore. All the Father knows is the Son. He's disarmed the enemy. What should that do for us? Should that give us an attitude that says, well, then I guess I can just do anything I want, live any way I want, be as sinful as I want to be? Because, no, it absolutely does not do that. It does exactly the opposite. Because if my sinful old man has been put away and 
Christ, the righteous one, is now my life. As I have received Christ, who is righteous, so walk in him. You didn't, remember, you didn't become a sinner because you started sinning. You sinned because you were a sinner. You didn't become righteous because you started acting righteous. Now that you have become righteous, you should walk righteously. And when you fail, the accusation, the, the, the accusation that could have been there before has been taken away, nailed to the cross because Christ died in your stead. Christ took your penalty for you. That's not a license to be unholy. That is every reason why we should be holy as God is holy. But knowing that we cannot do that in and for and of ourselves. We can only be that in Christ. So then Paul goes on in his next verse, verse 16. There, so let no one judge you in food or drink. Oh, it's not very righteous. You're not supposed to drink that. Oh, that's not very holy. You're not supposed to wear that. Oh, you didn't keep the Sabbath. You're going to burn in hell. Paul says, no, those things have been nailed to the cross. Don't let anyone judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Why? Because those are shadows of things to come. But the substance is Christ. Christ has come. The substance has come. We don't have to look at shadows anymore. So there needs to be an appearing of the Lord. There needs to be a revelation of Christ that takes place in the heart of the believer. And it's that revelation, it's that appearing of the Lord that enables me to, to look beyond the shadow now and look to and trust in the substance who is Christ. This is what the scripture points us to. And it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Therefore, it's Christ we must see. It's Christ that must be revealed in us by the working of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. It's Christ that must be revealed through us to the world around us that they may find the same hope that we have found in Christ. And so when God appeared to Abram, the Bible says, Abram built an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord. Worship, in other words, he worshiped God. You know what you're doing today, church? You're worshiping God. Worship is acknowledging and adoration. We are called to worship and to adore him. Abram built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. Abram worshipped and called upon the Lord, acknowledging God as the one and true living God, His only hope, His only source for any and everything. So the Lord called Abram, and then Abram began calling upon the name of the Lord. I want you to see that. That when God called to Abram, it was after God called Abram that Abram began to call upon the name of the Lord. God calls us to call upon Him. And like Abram, we don't call upon the name of the Lord until the Lord calls us. Until God calls us, we are dead and deaf 
and unable and unwilling to call upon his name. Until God calls us, we cannot hear and we cannot believe and we cannot see. It is impossible to trust in what you cannot hear or see or know. You don't trust in what you cannot see or hear or know. Until God calls us, we cannot call upon Him. But when He does call us, He calls us to hear, He calls us to see, and He calls us to acknowledge Him, to adore Him. He calls us to believe and to see and to worship Him. And each time we come together to worship, we come together to acknowledge and to, ignore the, to adore the Lord, to confess our faith, to give witness that the Lord has revealed Himself to us. You know why you're here today? Whether you realize it or not, you're giving witness that God has revealed Himself to you. If, if there was not, I don't care whether you are the most committed and have the deepest belief or whether you're here because you're trying to figure all this out. There is something in you that has caused you to believe at least that God is a possibility. Otherwise, I don't think any one of you would be here today. And I think it's much greater, much deeper than that. We are giving witness to the Lord who has revealed Himself to us. Your being here today, your act of worship today is testifying that God has revealed Himself to you. And you might have a lot of questions for Him. You might have a lot of unanswered questions. You might have a lot of things you're trying to figure out in your mind and in your spirit. There's something that has caused you to testify of Him. Otherwise, you would not be here today. And our worship is a testimony of Him. It's a confession that He has revealed Himself to us. We're here to testify to our hope in His promise through the gospel in Christ. To declare to the world His glory. This is the altar we build to Him each week in our worship as we call upon His name. Why did Abram build an altar? He, build an, he built an altar as an act of worship to testify, to leave a monument, to give testimony to God. We don't build physical altars, but every time you worship the Lord, every time you acknowledge Him, in an act of worship, there is a testimony that's taking place. There is, in a sense, an altar being built to the Lord as an act of worship. And you should be mindful of those. We're going to see that, that Abraham built those altars. He left those altars. He returned to those altars. And we see that throughout the scripture where men would build altars and they would come back to those altars and those altars would testify when the temple was eventually built and the altar was built in the temple those priests would come to that altar constantly 
And whether they realized it or not, it was a testimony of their constant need of God's grace. So God called Abram. And like God called Abram, God calls us. We are called to hear the word of the Lord and to believe. We are called to come into the promise who is Christ. We are called to believe and to then see Christ who has appeared to us. We are called to let go of the shadow and to embrace the substance who is Christ. And we are called to the altar of worship to adore Him and to call upon the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would do that. God, you would give us ears to hear your call. You would give us eyes to see your appearing. Lord, not in a physical way, not in a natural way, but in a spiritual way. That you would awaken our blind eyes, our deaf ears. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That by the power of your spirit, you would reveal yourself in our hearts by grace, through faith. That we would acknowledge you, God. That we would see our desperate state without you. That we would not only learn, but we would teach. We would feel the importance of teaching our children. We would feel and know the importance of teaching our families, of teaching one another, of being taught the truth, the gospel, that we would be transformed, no longer conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we would be conformed more and more to the image of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask God that you would do this by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.